0: Today's scripture is Colossians chapter 3, verse 9b, that means the second half of verse 9 and verse 10. Uh, You have taken off your old self with its practices and put on the new self, which is being renewed in the image of its creator, Colossians 3, 9b. So that's today's scripture, let's pray together. Loving God, uh, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the opportunity we have uh, to, to gather as your people, to gather together and find um, strength and encouragement uh, in community, but especially to find our strength and our encouragement uh, by your Holy Spirit in this place with us, speaking into our hearts. Uh, I pray for a revelation uh, that uh, the words of Scripture today, uh, that you would want to speak into our hearts and lives, would be revealed in a new way to us, that we would be inspired and transformed by them. We pray this in your son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen. Image is everything. Image is everything. This uh, past summer, my wife and I had the opportunity, uh, we were invited to a wedding and we had the opportunity to attend. And it's as if the moment Stacy got the little RSVP card and like committed that we were going to this wedding, Um, she started thinking, okay, what am I going to wear? Now, guys, we have it easy because for me to get ready for the wedding, I think I woke up on the day of, had a cup of coffee, went upstairs, found the shirt I was going to wear, ironed it, shaved, took a shower, and I was pretty much done. You know, that was it. Um, Stacy, on the other hand, the moment she RSVP'd, um, she started thinking about, well, what am I going to wear? And I could tell that she was thinking about, like, all the dresses in her closet. And she's like, okay, which dress am I going to wear? And then, I mean, this, this was a couple, like, weeks, more than a couple weeks. Then she came out and she was like, you know what, I, I think I'm going to go buy a new dress. I said, great, babe, go buy a new dress. So, like, I remember on weekend, one weekend, she said, I'm going to go to the mall and just kind of look around. So she looked around. She comes back several hours later. Did you buy a dress? No, I didn't buy a dress. I think I was just window shopping. I didn't find anything. Okay, fine. Next week, I think I'm going to go look for a dress. Great, go look for a dress. She goes, did you buy a dress today? No, I didn't buy a dress. What? <laughs> Finally, she goes, I think I'm going to wear the dress. I mean, this was weeks, a week, weeks of just getting ready for the wedding. Now, uh, eventually, right, the day came, the, the day of the wedding arrived, and we were primed, and we were primed, and we were ready to go. And image is everything. And I think we looked pretty good. And I've got a picture to share with you. Aw. Yeah. So let me ask you a question. Have you ever showed up at an event and you were overdressed? Um, I, I, don't, I don't know. I, the, when I thought of that question this week, what I thought of was interviews. And oftentimes, I think of interviews where the, the uh, work environment is like business casual. But when someone's interviewing, they don't know that. So they show up and they're in a tie and a suit and everything. And then it's like, there's always that kind of glimmer in their eye, am like, oh, oh my gosh, I'm wearing a suit and tie and this is business casual. Um, have you ever showed up, the, just the opposite. Have you ever showed up at an event and you were underdressed? Now, either way, there's just a, kind of a, an embarrassment, right? So sidebar, I wonder why. I wonder why there's embarrassment with that. I think it has something to do with our human need to belong and fit in. Anyways, about a year ago on a Friday night, uh, I was down in, uh, in downtown L.A. at night, and um, I stood outside a dance club, that, and this dance club had outside was very popular, had this long line outside um, of people trying to get in. And there was security, big, big, like, monkey men in black suits and black ties, and they were out there. And they were, it was very obvious that as I kind of, I was just kind of watching everything, people watching and stuff. But as I was watching all of this, it was very clear that the security was letting only people in to the club that had the look, right? And the security was keeping out the people who didn't have the look, (laughs) Now, believe it or not, all of this has to do with today's scripture. You have taken off your old self with its old practices and you have put on the new self. When I was preparing this message this weekend, uh, or for this weekend rather, um, there were two additional scriptures that were laid on my heart. And so I'm going to share those with you today. Now, the first one comes from Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 14. And I'm going to uh, warn you, this is from the PJV. That's the Pastor Jonathan version. Um, um, and, and some of this, may, uh, this story may uh, sound uh, familiar to you, and it's definitely related to our primary scripture this morning. It goes like this. Jesus was talking, and he was teaching, and, and, and he said, God's kingdom is like... So anytime Jesus told a parable, and he started with these words, God's kingdom is like... Whatever we're going to hear next, it's going to be rooted in the reality of everyday life, but there's a parallel meaning. We can read the story. Sometimes they're entertaining. Oftentimes they're ironic, but then there's just a parallel meaning. Okay, what we are hearing in the story is a parallel of God's kingdom. And so Jesus started, God's kingdom is like a king who threw a wedding banquet for his son. He sent out servants to call in all of the invited guests, and they wouldn't come. So he, right, that's the irony. So the king sent out another round of servants instructing them to tell the guests, now look, everything is on the table, prime rib, tri-tip, it's all ready to be carved. Come to the feast. The guests just shrugged their shoulders. They went off. One went to weed his garden. Now, pause. There are weddings that we can say no to. I'm not sure you want to say no to a wedding banquet that's being thrown by a king because the resources of the king are almost limitless, right? I think that's a party I would want to go to no matter what. I would change my schedule to go. No. They shrugged their shoulders and went off. One went to weed his garden. Instead, another went to work. Oh, come on. A bad day at a wedding is still better than a good day at work. Come on. So, the rest who were invited, with nothing better to do, beat the king's messengers and killed them. Apparently, the king, uh, uh, rather appropriately, the king was so outraged that he sent his soldiers and he destroyed those thugs and he leveled their city. Then the king told his servants, We have a wedding banquet that is all prepared, but no guests. The people invited didn't want to come. So go into the busiest intersections of Simi Valley, go to Cochrane and First Street, go to Erringer and LA, go to the parking lot of Trader Joe's at one o'clock any day of the week. Get as many people as you can, invite them to, to into the banquet. And so the servants went out into the streets and they rounded up everyone that they could set their, si- their eyes on. And the banquet was on, party on. Every seat was filled. Now, I'm stopping there because Jesus could have stopped there. He didn't. I'm g- there's actually more to share. But at this point, he could have stopped there and this parable in and of itself would have been enough, radical revolutionary, revelatory. So I want to talk about what's going on. What, what's the parallel meaning? What's the kingdom? So we have God who called a nation into being. That nation is Israel. Into the promised land, the land of Canaan, where God's people would be a nation among the nations from whom a Savior would come. And those people represent the guests who are invited but are cho- choosing not to participate. And so Jesus is really uh, critiquing specifically the, the Jewish leaders of his time. Um, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, uh, the rabbis, those who were looking at Jesus and judging him. Jesus was saying, come and hear a new truth. And they didn't want anything to do with it. And, so what that, if, and if that wasn't radical enough... Jesus goes on to talk about this idea of like, okay, so if they're not going to listen, the invitation goes out to everyone. Everyone is invited in. All of this would have been radical then, and it's certainly uh, radical in our day and age as well. Now, that would have been enough if that's where Jesus stopped the parable, but he continues. And This part of the parable for years mystified me. I, I didn't understand it. I, I didn't. So I want to share it with you. And, it, and again, it relates back to our primary scripture. Jesus continued. Then the king entered into the banquet. And he looked over the reception. And he spotted a man who wasn't properly dressed. And the king went up to him and he said to him, How dare you come in here dressed like that? The man was speechless and without excuse. Then the king ordered security. Get him out of here fast. Make sure he doesn't come back in. Tie him up and send him to hell. Then Jesus concluded. That's what I mean when I say many are invited, but few are chosen. Totally confusing to me. How many of you are confused? It's like, I don't understand how a king invites everyone. Like, all of that prep of, like, inviting people and them not coming in, finally going out into the streets. There's kind of this feeling in the parable as if it's a come-as-you-are event. So what we're missing in our understanding of this is what would have been culturally appropriate 2,000 years ago. When anyone would have a big wedding ceremony and banquet, the guests were um, given, um, offered, and given, um, w- w- like, special clothing for the event. And so you would show up, but it was kind con- I don't want to call it, like, <laughs> that's terrible. I think of Red Lobster and the Big Big. It's not quite <laughs> that, but it's like a, and I don't want to say a toga, because then I think Greek toga party. Not quite like that, but basically something that you would put over yourself. Poncho, that's what I was looking for, like a poncho. You put, but a really long one that you would have a tie around the waist, and you put that over. So, so the host provides clothing for the wedding that allows you and and identifies you as part of the wedding party. So, so the story of this guy showing up, and and not being appropriately addressed and being called out for it and being condemned for it. What does that say about him and the kingdom of God? Well. At a minimum, he's what? Disrespectful? Disrespectful of the host and what the host has to offer? Um, ungrateful? Maybe a sense of entitlement? Like, hey, I can be here just the way I am and it doesn't matter. I can, you know, take me or leave me, I'm here. Maybe it's both disrespectful and a sense of entitlement. Which leads to my first point today. No shoes no shirt, no service. right? no i say it like i'm sister shirt, i'm a california, southern california server. no shoes, no shirt, no service. now i was thinking about this this week. It, i don't think i've seen signs like that in a long time. i do remember seeing signs like that um, when i was a child like I grew up in the 70s, and, and I remember going into restaurants and fast food restaurants where there'd be a sign that would say, no shoes, no shirt, no service. And I was thinking, why is it that, you know, years ago these signs were around, not, and I don't see them anymore. And then it occurred to me, oh, it was the era of hippies. It was the, sh- the, the tail end of the hippie era. So, so, you know, long before there were hipsters, there were hippies. And the hippies were walking around their bare feet. And apparently, some of you are nodding like, yeah, I was there, man, peace. (laughs) Um, And and so so I was thinking, oh, that's why, right? And if you were to ask my daughter today, like, why would somebody walk into a restaurant without their shirt or without shoes? And she'd go, Daddy, that's disgusting, (laughs) right? Uh, There's just something about, like, hygiene and food that just doesn't work well together. And so no shoes, no shirt, no service really conveys this idea like if we think that we can just, in the kingdom of God, strut into God's presence without any um, remorse of our old self and its practices to say, take me or leave me. I deserve to be here. Um, That's an untenable attitude. It's an untenable situation. And I say it like that because Pastor Neil, uh, several weeks ago, was talking, gave this image that has stuck with me ever since. And it's that idea of a person who's standing on with one foot on the dock and another foot on the boat. You, you can only sustain that for so long. In my mind's eye, I, I'm going to exaggerate it a, a little and add to it, which is to say... Let's call it Kingdom Cruises. Some of you have been on cruises, right? Let's call it Kingdom Cruises. And at the helm is Jesus. And Jesus has a plan for your life. And Jesus has a journey to take you on along with him. And, and he's going to take you to the western horizon. And along the way, there's going to be, there's some, sometimes it's, there's going to be storms. But Jesus is going to be there to get you through them. And there's other times where there's going to be awesome islands that you're going to explore. And you're going to go, this is awesome. Kingdom cruises with Jesus at the helm, and there is a part of us who we're standing with one foot on the dock and one foot on the cruise line, and it's in an untenable situation. And so I ask us to consider, are there any disrespectful behaviors or practices in our lives? Are there any attitudes of entitlement that we harbor that serve as a barrier between Us and God. Because our scripture today is saying you've taken off your old self and its practices and put on a new self. Which leads me quickly to my next point, point number two. Out with the old, in with the new. Out with the old, in with the new. I told you earlier that in preparing for this message this weekend, there were two scriptures that were placed on my heart. The first was the parable I just shared with you, the second one, is um, David and Goliath. David and Goliath. Now, all I have to do is say David and Goliath. Those three words, I've got to count them on my fingers. Um, David and Goliath. I say those words to you, and immediately, that is like shorthand for a concept that we understand immediately. It's the idea of the underdog and and the overcoming circumstances, of, of the underdog and... Um, in a situation that's so much larger than the individual, and somehow that individual overcomes. David and Goliath, it's a David and Goliath situation, that's shorthand for all of those ideas. And so many of us, uh, whether uh, we're well familiar with Scripture, but others of us who aren't, um, those words alone uh, give us this concept. We are familiar with the story. But I'm going to dig in a little deeper with the details of that story just because I think it's a cool story. Um, and secondly, there's a part to this story that I think is often um, forgotten or overlooked. So let's start with David and Goliath. What's the situation? The situation um, is, well, let's, big picture. There's the three great kings of ancient Israel. King Saul, King David, and then King David's son, King Solomon. Those are the three great kings. And King Saul um, has basically uh, is in battle with the Philistines, and it's a standoff between uh, the Philistines and the Israel's army. And they are, the standoff is at a valley, and on one side is the Philistines and the other, uh, the, the Israel army. And in that army is uh, David's three oldest brothers. So, so uh, King David, is they're all the sons of Jesse. And the three oldest brothers are part of Saul's army, and King David is the youngest brother of eight, and he stays at home with his dad. And he, I mean, being you know, what I mean, the little brother, like he gets he gets the glorious job of taking care of the sheep, of being a shepherd. Now the story is is that Jesse, and some commentators were saying that this may happen may have happened more than once. So there, the siege, I'm sorry, if I didn't mention it, the siege has lasted forty days, um, and. The, I'm gonna. I'm jumping around. I know that. Just roll with me. Um, so every day of this forty-day siege, the Goliath comes out from behind the line, the the Philistine lines, and he taunts the the Israel army. He taunts them. Now, uh, uh, we're told that um, that Goliath is six cubits tall. Actually, six and a half cubits tall. Um, how tall is six and a half cubits? Well, it's taller than Shaquille O'Neal. Um, when I was a kid, I had the opportunity to go to Lakers games in junior high. I loved basketball, and I remember uh, we got there early one game, and as they were warming up, I went to the courtside to try to get an autograph. And Kareem Abdul-Jabbar like, was clo- as close to me as you are, Mark. And I remember just like I'm still in junior high, and I'm just looking at this man way up there. I was like, whoa, blown away. Um, Six and a half cubits is taller than Kareem Abdul Jabbar. It's taller than Yao Ming, the Chinese basketball player who stands at seven feet six inches. Um, So, how tall is six and a half cubits? Well, six and a half cubits is about nine and a half feet tall. So, he's a giant. Now, if you still want to know how tall that is, I'm guessing it's right at the bottom of this beam right here. That's how tall Goliath would have been. So he's getting out every uh, every day in the morning and every day in the evening, and he's taunting the opposing army and he uh, the, if you read this uh it's in first Samuel chapter seventeen, and the story is uh wonderfully detailed in that it outlines in one paragraph all of the armor and uh paraphernalia that that Goliath is wearing so the picture is this that we have to understand with all of those details he Goliath is, of course, like a giant, and secondly, he's wearing the cutting-edge military technology of his day. It talks about the bronze helmet. It's talking about this javelin and a sword and the breastplate and a shield-bearer and all this kind of stuff. And why is it going into all that deal? To communicate clearly that this is cutting-edge military technology on their arm, in, on their, <laughs> worn by their army's largest soldier. And so every morning and every evening, he's getting out and he's taunting them. He's saying things. And, and, and meanwhile, for 40 days, this is going on. Meanwhile, the other army, the Israel's army, is sitting there and they're listening to this. And there's a detail that was revealed to me this week that I had always overlooked. Pause. Because I have to go back. So Jesse, David. So Jesse tells David, the littlest brother, hey, I'm going to give you supplies. Uh, go give your brothers the supplies and and see what's going on. Like what's what's going on. Are they are they fighting? Are we winning? Are we? What's going on? Get the news and bring it back. Um, so, when David goes, uh, David goes to give the supplies. Uh, and and when he's there, he's taking it all in. And maybe he's done this several times. But this is the time when he actually sees. Uh, the giant philistine goliath taunting the army and he starts asking questions well what's going on who's who's going to fight him why isn't anybody fighting him and he's asking all these questions now 40 days of this and this is the one of the insights i had this this week and that is i always thought the oldest brothers it sounds as if they're like because he's the littlest brother right sibling rivalry and all that kind of stuff are just like sh- basically they shut up go home like just Stop, you know, you're getting it, you're in our way, kid, you know, kick him home. What I heard and read this week revealed something much more. Because the phrase, the quote of the oldest brothers are, why are you asking all these questions? Are you here just so that you can sit on a hill and watch us die? Now that is an insight to something so much more. 'Cause that communicates that the three brothers, right? It's not a, uh, yeah, they're they're expressing fear to their youngest brother that really their fear is we're gonna die. We're not this isn't a successful military campaign. This is a standoff and, and, and we're just waiting each and every day that we're gonna go into battle and we're gonna die. Are you just gonna sit on the hill and watch us die? What are you doing here? And I think it's an insight then to the whole army itself. They're all afraid. And the giant Philistine, Goliath, comes out every day and taunts them. I think that fear even goes further. Because King Saul uh, is behind the lines. And he's trying to incentivize his soldiers. And so he's trying to promote, like, somebody take on Goliath. Somebody take on this giant. And so he's, he's trying to give them reasons to do this. So one of the incentives is, I will give you a a financial bonus. If you fight the Philistine and win, I'm going to give you money. Nobody takes them up on it. What's another incentive? I know. I will give you money, and you can marry my oldest daughter. So that's money and status, marrying into the royal family. That's status, gaining status. And no one takes them up on it. I know, and I think if this were offered today, some of you today might actually do it. And that is, money, financial, nobody took it. Financial benefit, nobody took it. Marrying the oldest daughter, nobody took it. The rest of your life, free of taxes. (laughs) Yeah, right? Nobody took it. So David, the littlest brother, is there, and he's, you know, what's going on? Why isn't anybody doing it? He goes, I'll do it. I'll take on the giant. Now, we should, at this point, we know how the story ends, but at this point, in lifetime, we'd all be going. Uh, that doesn't seem like a good idea. Now, this is where I want to go into the overlooked or forgotten details of this story. I'm going to read it. Uh, this is First Samuel 17. Then Saul. So, so David goes to see King Saul. I, I. The reason why this is significant is is Saul's reign as king has an ark. And, and the battle with Goliath is kind of the turning point where King David's rise to power s- starts to ascend and King Saul's starts to descend. So David goes into King Saul and, and, and Saul, it says, Saul dressed David in his own tunic. And and the king put on his coat of armor on David and and a bronze helmet on his head. And David fastened, now, right, you need to compare this to that whole paragraph that described what Goliath is wearing. And David fastened on the king's sword over this tunic and, and you can see it's just kind of a, a comic, right? He's, he's trying to walk around and it's just, it's not working. And it says, because David was not used to them. Um, I, I will go into even more details. If you go and read commentaries about this, co- some commentaries think that this picture is so absurd that it couldn't be true. What, David, what Saul really did was he went to his armory and got out, got out armor that would fit David. And it, didn't, and it wasn't comfortable or something. But I, if you, uh, l- let me just expose you to this idea of oral history and how oral history go, uh, is, is uh, passed on which I think speaks to the truth of this story, because I heard a commentator this week on the radio refer to David and Goliath as mythology. Um, or I was going to say, hey, when I started, this is the story of David and Goliath. It's not a story. It's not a mythology. It's history. It's, it's true. And I think what speaks to the truth of the history of this is this moment if you understand oral history which is when oral history is is, is passed from generation to generation the stories that are comic sticks with you the, por- the 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 details of irony and and humor stick with us and this is definitely meant to be a picture of humor you've got you know we've seen little kids dress up in things and you know it's, it's funny they're bu- and basically we've got david who is probably a teenager who's got sauls armor on, and he's kind of going like, I can't, you know, I can't carry the sword. This is uh, perhaps even more exaggerated when I tell you this. So I haven't even finished the story. Okay, so, so, so David says to Saul, I cannot go into battle in these because I'm not used to them. And so David took them off. Take off your old towel. Just hinting, hinting. So he took them off. Then he took his staff, in his hand, his own staff, and he went down to the the river, and he found five smooth stones, and he put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag, and with a sling in his hand, he approached the Philistine. Now, the reason why this dressing of, of David in Saul's armor is humorous is twofold. If anybody should fight Goliath, it should be King Saul. No one else. It should be King Saul. And there's two reasons for this. Dave, uh, Saul had multiple military, successful military ca- campaigns. So I'm going to list them for you. After the siege of Gabesh gilead Saul conducted successful military campaign, campaigns against the Moabites, the Ammonites, the Edomites, the Aram-Rahob, and the kings of Zobah. He had previously had successful military campaigns against the Philistines and the Amalekites. In 1 Samuel chapter 14, verse 47, which is three chapters prior to the history of David and Goliath, it summarizes Saul's military career, King Saul's military career, in these words. Wherever Saul turned, he was victorious. If anybody should fight Goliath, it should be King Saul. But not only that, in chapter, 1 Samuel chapter 9, it records that Saul, although his exact height is not given, Saul, in chapter 9, is recorded as a, being a head taller than anyone else in all of Israel, which implies that King Saul was probably six feet tall or higher. So physically, if anybody ha- can match Goliath, it's King Saul. Remember I was talking about fear? It's not just the army. It's everyone. Maybe I can find some other sucker (laughs) to fight this fight. Now, now we go into application mode. Please get this. King Saul is declining in power. And David is rising in power. Think how idiotic this is. David is going to be a successful king. In fact, he's going to be the most successful king. In fact, he's going to take the nation of Israel to places and height and expansion that Saul will have never taken the country. And Saul's like, okay, you're going into battle. Great. Here's how I think you should do it. And the way you should do it is symbolized by the armor. The way you should go into battle and be successful is do it exactly the way I would do it. Here, wear my helmet. Here, wear my armor. Here, take my shield. Take my sword. Do it exactly the way I've done it and you'll have success. Really? Because if that were true, wouldn't Saul himself fight the battle? And honestly, if the country continued to do the things the way Saul always did them, they would get the same results. And the results in the current situation is a standoff going nowhere. And so Saul is like, do it my way. Now, God bless David. He, I mean, maybe out of respect, he tries it, and then he's like, this isn't going to work. You know what? In order for me to succeed, in order for me, now he can't say this yet, but in order for me to uh, bring this country where it needs to be higher and more successful than you have taken it, i got to do it my way. My military successes, man, I've been fighting off bears. I've been fighting off wolves. I've been fighting off, you know, lions who have attacked my, 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 sheep, my, my sheep, my sheepfold. What, my tools of success are a staff and stones and a sling. God bless David for standing up for himself and taking the experiences that he had in order to bring success in this battle and ultimately to the country. Now, here's the application for us as a church, as a faith community. We are a church in transition. We've had a long-term pastor who has retired, and we are in this season of transition, and a new pastor is coming. We need to prepare ourselves because if we, uh, what's a posture? What is our posture going to be when the new pastor, he or she comes to Stonebridge Community Church? Is our posture going to be one of truly humility before God and our posture to welcoming that new pastor? Is our posture going to be we expect you to do everything the way we've always done it. We've always done it this way, and this is the success we've had. So we expect you to do that. Here, wear the helmet that we've always worn. Here, take the shield that you've always worn, that we've worn, in order to have the success that we've accomplished. So, so, what is our posture gonna be? Things will change can we trust that God has a new thing in store for Stonebridge and that that new thing is going to be led by an individual whose experiences are required to be drawn upon to take Stonebridge to a new place? I'm actually excited about all of this. It's exciting that God is doing a new thing among us. But I think in this season of transition, it's also a season of preparation with regards to us as a community posturing our hearts humbly before the God and praying about all of it, uh, and looking at ourselves in the mirror with regards to how we're going to welcome that pastor and what we might be able to expect. Now, that's the institution, uh, institutional application. I want to get to the personal application, which is this. Some of us today may be convicted by this idea of the old self and its practices. Right, that's Saul, the old self and its practices. And some of us today may be feeling like we are being held down, truly in bondage to the old self. We, we, right? We're on, that, we're on that pier with one foot on the pier and one foot on, on the kingdom cruise. And for whatever reason, we keep getting locked into perhaps a, a pattern of thought or a pattern of behavior that for whatever reason we're holding on to. Today's scripture encourages, it's, you, it's actually in past tests, you have taken off the old self and you have put on, and its practices, and put on the new self. And so individually, I encourage you to, with humility, like look into your heart. Is there a sense of entitlement that stands as a barrier between you and God? Prayerfully consider those things in your life that are not working and prayerfully consider why. Are we continuing to cling to them when Scripture again and again and again continues to take off the old self and its practices? One of the things uh, I I just have to shout out to Stonebridge Christian Recovery because what I love about that ministry is that it's not just about um, addiction as we usually understand it. Um, We all have hurts, we all have hang-ups, we all have patterns of behavior and habits that are holding us back. And Stonebridge Recovery with bib- biblically principl- biblical principles and with using the 12 steps help individuals find healing from stepping away from the old self and stepping into the new. Okay. No shoes, no shirt, no service. Out with the old, in with the new. Point three, we become... Who we adore. I'm going to wrap this up real quick. We become who we adore. 60 years ago, we may have referred to them as television stars or movie stars. 25 years ago, our culture changed. And I think the one thing that happened in our culture that changed our culture was reality TV. Celebrities being famous for being famous. And that was all, I think, kickstarted by Reality TV, and if if some of you might remember, MTV's The Real World, I think, was the first reality show. So they went from TV stars and movie stars to celebrities. Well, it's 2019, and now we call them influencers. Influencers, and specifically, we call them social media influencers. If you're following along in the U version, or later on, you can look at it. I, I included an article of the 10 top worldwide uh, social media influencers. These are individuals who, by using YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, are, making, are influencing millions of people and making a lot of money. It blew me away. They're not just making a living. There are people who are making... One individual, I think she was down like in sixth place, was making $12 million a year by being a social influencer, social media influencer. Now, this is what this looks like in my own house. Um, in my own house, my daughter, we think of, I think of my family, I think of kids, and maybe we think of all our kids, that that, that coming of age, of coming to the rite of passage, okay? And my daughter, so I had this, as a fa- unknowing father, I had this kind of um, uh, fantasy of what coming of age for my daughter might look like, and it involved my daughter and my wife. And one day, like my daughter would just she'd be a girl, and she would be like, instead of playing with makeup, she would go to Stacy and say, "You know what? I want to learn how to put on makeup and be a young woman." And the two of them would sit in front of the mirror, and Stacy. This is comical, and only Stacy can laugh at it. Wait, she's not here. <laughs> she's up there. She's like, that's not me. If you know me, anyways. And they'd sit there and they would do makeup together, and like, my my, it would just be this wonderful, beautiful moment of, of a rite of passage. It didn't happen that way at all. This is how it happened. My daughter uh, spends more time on social media than she does watching uh, traditional television. So she goes into a room and in her bedroom, and she's watching kind of stuff, and 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 and, and so being influenced by influencers. And uh, one day uh, she came out and she asked mom for makeup. And I thought she just wanted to play with the makeup. So she went in and she disappeared for like 45 minutes. And the door was closed. And she has a bunch of makeup. And when she came out, she was like, she, she went in a little girl, beautiful little girl, and she came out like this beautiful young woman. I'm like, what just happened? And her face was like, it's her face, but it it, had, it was like, and it was perfect. Her makeup was perfect. And I'm like, how did that happen? And I asked her, Sydney, how did that happen? And she goes, oh, so YouTube, dad. I'm like, what? And so She showed me. She pushed a button on her and held her phone up. And I'm looking at her face next to a screen. And the face that I'm looking at of my daughter is is identical to the face on the YouTube. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, that's incredible. We become who we adore. In my mind, adore is a strong word. It's a strong word because it's related to the word adoration And one definition of adoration is worship. We become who we adore. And when we adore anything other than God, then that's idolatry. Colossians 3, 9b, and 10. You have taken off the old self with its practices and you've put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge in the image of its creator. In the image of its creator. We must take off the old self and its practices of idolatry, and we must put on a new self that is being renewed in the knowledge, in the image of the Creator. Image is everything. Whose image do you adore?